This is the second week of our series that we're calling Origin Story. Uh, it's a series that is based on the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch are the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. As I said, the very first week of the series, it's a little different. It's more in survey. Each week, we're going to overview one of these books in its entirety. That's a lot to do. But I want you to see, one, how these five books fit together. But I also want you to see how the first five books of the Bible, there's 66 books in the Bible, the first five lay the foundation for everything that we believe. And if you were here a couple of weeks ago, we started our series by looking at the book of Genesis. Last week, we, we, we diverted to Father's Day, and I talked to the women about the top needs of men, and men, you look happy. I'm just going to say, you look happier this week than you did. But we're getting back to our series this week, and we're going to tackle the book of Exodus. It's a book about freedom. I think we would all agree there's nothing better in life than being completely free. In just a few days, we'll celebrate Independence Day on July the 4th because we're free. We're no longer under the boot of England. We don't want to go back into that oppression again. We love being free. It's the great pulsating theme and every human heart anywhere around the world, I want to be free. So it makes sense that God would give us a book early on in the Bible about freedom. It's the book of Exodus. But to really understand the book of Exodus, you have to go back a few chapters. You have to go back to Genesis chapter 47. I encouraged you to bring your Bible for this series. I hope you did. Genesis 47, while you're turning there, let me just give you some background information about the book. The, the word Exodus means departure. It means going out. It means going forth. And just like with the book of Genesis, the background of the word is from the Septuagint. I told you the Septuagint was written uh, in, in about 250 BC. 70 scholars got together. They translated the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek because that was the language of the day. And when they did that, they chose the word Exodus because without a doubt, it is the major theme of the book. By the way, the Hebrew title of the book was simply this. These are the names. Not very creative. It's actually the first four words in the book of Exodus. These are the names. So I think the book Exodus is much improvement, right? Now, let me just tell you, how does this book fit into the book of Genesis? Well, last time we saw that the book of Genesis is a book of beginnings. Everything that has a beginning, you can trace back to the book of Genesis. And as we got toward the end of our, our time together, we identified four major characters in the book of Exodus. We talked about Abraham, that God was going to bring us great nation through him. It was going to bless all the peoples, all the families of the earth. So we talked about Abraham. And then Abraham had a son named Isaac. Isaac had a son named Jacob, who's also called Israel. Jacob had 12 sons. One of those sons was Joseph. And you may remember, he, if you went to Sunday school or vacation Bible school, he was the young lad who had the coat of many colors, right? He was daddy's pet. He was daddy's favorite. And as a result, he had 11 brothers who hated him. I mean, they were just sick of the preferential treatment. So the story goes that one day while the 11 brothers are out taking care of the flocks, Joseph comes out to visit them. He doesn't do that kind of stuff. He's probably coming directly from a pedicure and a manicure. He doesn't get dirt under his nails, right? And the brothers snap. They've had it. They, they rip that that coat off of him, that coat of many colors. They rip it up. They kill an animal. They put blood all over it. They take the, the coat home to daddy, Jacob, and say, daddy, an animal killed Joseph. Deal with it. You're stuck with us now, right? They sell him into slavery. Joseph actually ends up in Egypt. And think about this. While he's in Egypt, God takes Joseph on a journey that starts out in prison, but ends up with Joseph in the high-ranking office of prime minister of Egypt. In other words, he is working right alongside of Pharaoh. He is working right alongside of the king 
of Egypt. Now, as the story goes forward, understand Joseph's brothers, they've long since forgotten Joseph. I am confident they thought when they saw him go off into slavery, they were never going to see him again. But a famine strikes where this family lives. And they're going to die unless they find some food. And so they hear through the grapevine that there's food in Egypt. Now, they don't realize it, but their long lost brother is the reason that there's food in Egypt. Because in the role of prime minister, he had a dream about this incoming approaching famine. And so he, he plans ahead and he stores up enough food. He stores up enough grain so that when the famine hits, there's plenty of food in Egypt. And so they find out there's food in Egypt and to survive, these brothers are permitted into Egypt. And through a series of events, they discover that Joseph is alive, that he's now the prime minister of Egypt. And there's some forgiveness and there's a lot of healing that goes on. There's an incredible family uh, reunion that takes place. And then eventually all of Jacob's sons, all of their families move into the fertile valley of the Nile in Northern Egypt. And so you pick it up in Genesis 47, verse 27. It says, now the Israelites settled in Egypt in the region of Goshen. They acquired property there. Now notice this phrase because it will come into play. They were fruitful and increased greatly in number. So they settle in Egypt. Well, eventually Jacob, the dad, dies. And then you get to the last chapter in the book of Genesis. You get to verse 22 and it says, Joseph stayed in Egypt along with all his father's family. He lived 110 years. Verse 24, then Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham. We go back to Genesis, to Isaac, to Jacob. In other words, he is going to give you that land, the promised land. So Joseph died at the age of 110. And after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt, period. End of the book of Genesis. But suddenly there's an extended period of silence. In fact, from this last verse in the book of Genesis to the very first word in the book of Exodus, there's an extended period of time. There's 350 years that pass. 350 years. And during this 350 years, not only does Joseph die, but his sons die, and their sons die, and their sons die, and their sons die. And And there's a long line of pharaohs that come and go. So understand when the curtain rises on the book of Exodus, We have a brand new scene in the land of Egypt. Now, as I shared with you earlier, the Jews, they were a very, very prolific people. In fact, I'll show you in a verse in just a few minutes. It shows you that they have now grown to over 6,000, 600,000 men. That's not even counting women and children. So you add in women, women and children, and we're talking about a group now that has grown to two to maybe two and a half million people. And they're now living under an Egyptian flag. In fact, some historians believe that at this point in history, the Hebrew people actually outnumbered the Egyptians. Well, that's a problem, right? So you get Exodus chapter one, verse eight. It says, then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. He doesn't know about Joseph. He hasn't heard the stories of Joseph. It means nothing to him. Maybe you've gone through an experience like that in the marketplace. Maybe you got hired, the CEO hired you. He was gonna groom you. He poured into you. He mentored you. You were gonna do great things. You had a great future. And then he quit or he retired. Or worst case scenario, he died. And now there's a new 
Pharaoh in the land. Okay, there's a new boss in the land who doesn't know you from Adam's house kid, right? So you have no preferential treatment at all. See, the Hebrew people, they find themselves in this kind of predicament. But not only did this Pharaoh not know Joseph, he looks at all of these Hebrew people and he sees them as a threat. So you see Exodus chapter one, verse nine, look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us and leave the country. So the Pharaoh, he sees the number of Hebrews living in Egypt. And he's like, wow, this is a potential threat. There could be an uprising. They could turn against us. They could even take over. And so the Pharaoh, he comes up with a plan, chapter one, verse 15. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Pua, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. And understand, this is just one of the many attempts to exterminate the Jews down through history. It's never happened. Do you know why? They're God's chosen people. He's going to bring a great nation for them. They're going to, through, through Abraham, all the people, all the families on the earth are going to be blessed. Well, thankfully, these Hebrew midwives, they don't cooperate with Pharaoh. They don't do what he says. He gets angry. So it says in verse 22 of chapter 1, then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Forget the midwives. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. So think of this scenario. We've got a, we've got a Pharaoh who didn't know Joseph. We've got a number of Hebrews who pose a threat to the Egyptians. And now we have a plan to exterminate all the Hebrew baby boys. And as only God can do, it's as if he snaps a zoom lens on his camera. He focuses in on the tribe of Levi. He picks out a couple by the name of Amram and Jochebed. And in the middle of all of this bondage experience, there were 430 years of bondage. In the middle of all this, they have a little baby boy. By the way, his parents didn't name him Moses. His adoptive mother gave him that name. Let me show you how it all went down, beginning in chapter two, verse one. Now a man of the tribe of Levi, Amram, married a Levite woman, Jochebed. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him, coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it, put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister, by the way, her name is Miriam. So Miriam stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds, sent her female slave to get it. She opened it up. And she sees this baby. Now, let me tell you, how ingenious is this plan? Jochebed figures out what's going to happen. So she plants her daughter, Miriam, to supply Pharaoh's daughter with all of this insider information. I mean, obviously, this baby, he's going to need to be nursed. This is a baby. He's going to need to be cared for. And guess what? Miriam just happens to know a Hebrew woman who is more than happy to accommodate them, right? So this little baby falls right back into the arms of his mama, okay? And Jochebed takes Moses and she keeps him 
until he's weaned. In other words, she gets to be with him during these formative years. And I gotta tell you, there must have been some serious bonding taking place. She knows every day is important. She's got maybe three years, four years, maybe at the most, five years. And so she instills in this child the things that only a mom can instill. She teaches him things like tenderness and spiritual authenticity and unselfish love and self-esteem. She reminds him, she teaches him who he is. She teaches him where he came from, what his roots are. And then it says in chapter two, verse 10, when the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter. He became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. So understand, we have this, we have this Hebrew child named Moses, by the way, who God has sovereignly chosen to be the deliverer. We said sovereign means that God can just do whatever he wants. He just decided it was gonna be Moses. So we have him now living in Pharaoh's palace. And when you think about it, it makes sense. I mean, after all, the guy who's gonna deliver Israel from Egypt ought to know a lot about Egypt. He ought to know about how it works. He ought to know a lot about the culture. So think about this. God gets Moses right into the court of Pharaoh. And God gives Moses a 40-year education, free of charge. I mean, he gets to go to the best schools. He learns about science and astronomy and mathematics and medicine. Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that this particular Pharaoh never had a son. That's why Moses was being groomed for the throne. So Moses is right where God wants him to be. But the plot thickens when you get to chapter 2, verse 11. It says, one day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. So now understand Moses is not only the deliverer, but he's also Moses the murderer. But you get to verse 15, when Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian where he sat down by a well. Well, what happened? Well. He fell in love with a girl. Her name was Zipporah. They get married. They start a family. He goes to work for her dad. So he's working for his father-in-law, punching the clock as a shepherd in the Midian desert. And he does it for 40 years. So if you do the math, Moses is now 80 years old, working as a shepherd. Long past when most of us were retired. Long since forgotten about the education, the luxury of living in the palace of the Pharaoh. And you get to chapter three, verse one. And it says, Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. He led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight. I need to figure out why this bush isn't burning up. And you got to understand at this point in the story, God has Moses right where he wants him. Now, maybe not from our perspective. I mean, from our perspective, we're like, yeah, I don't think so. A murderer, a washed up 80-year-old shepherd, sure. God has him highly qualified and educated to be completely useless. See, from a human perspective, that's what it looks like. But see, again, it's all about perspective. It was A.W. Tozer who said, it's doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he's hurt him deeply. 
Another one of Tozer's books, he talks about the roots of righteousness. And he talks about there are times when God will put us through a furnace-like experience. And he'll use hammers and, and, and chisels. And he'll use the flame to shape us and to work us and to break us down to the person that he needs us to be so that he can use us. So understand, Moses has been in the desert. And while in the desert, he's been broken by God. So that now God, after getting him through his real education in the desert, can use him. So Moses, he walks over, he's looking at this bush. He cannot, for the life of him, figure out why it's not burning up. Chapter three, verse seven, the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the land of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. He's talking about the promised land, and you know what? It is a land that flows with milk and honey. You can't believe it till you visit. And it says, now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. And this is what he says to Moses. Three words. So now go. Now you got to understand. These are the last words that Moses wanted to hear. He remembers the Pharaoh. And he remembers him as the guy who ran him out of town. He remembers the Pharaoh as the guy who wanted to kill him. Verse 10. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh. To bring my people. The Israelites out of Egypt. And if you had a pen and you had your Bible, you could circle the word bring and you could circle the word out and you would have Exodus. He says, you're going to bring Moses. You're going to bring my people out. You're going to lead my people to freedom. And then he gives them some assurance in verse 12. God said, I will be with you. This will be my sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Now remember that. And Moses begins that famous section that could only be described in one word. You ever felt like that? When God wants you to do something? You want me? Right? In fact, I'll be my typical response when I begin to realize that God has a God-sized task in store for me is the same as Moses in chapter 3, verse 11. Moses said to God, Who am I? I, who am I? By the way, let me just say this. Maybe you don't realize it yet, but some of you sitting here right now, some of you watching at our other campuses right now, some of you, you are a Moses in the making. And you already have every excuse why you're not the right one. You're too young, you're too old, you haven't been to college, you got too much baggage, you got too much fear, you got a long history of failure. You know, you're highly qualified to underwhelm people. But let me tell you something. Once God sets his sights on you, once God sovereignly decides you're the person that I need that's going to get this done, I'm telling you, he will not give up. Because understand, when God looks at you, he sees you not as what you are. He sees you as what you're going to become. In the book I just wrote, You Can't But God Can, I talk about when God chooses us to do something, understand, he already knows what it is that he wants you to do. He already knows how you're gonna do it. When God said, David, hey, I need somebody to take on the giant, David didn't have to worry about how. God already knew how. God's just looking for who. 
God's just looking for someone who's willing to step in the gap, someone who is willing to do the job. By the way, a few of you have asked uh, if, if you could still get my book. You can. You can just contact the church office. We can get it to you. You can go to berenewed.org. I hope you read it. I think it could have a shaping influence on your life. But God's just looking for people who, who are willing to do what he wants them to do. So God says to Moses, listen, I hear the cries of my people. And Moses, I'm telling you, you are the guy. You are the who. And you can read it on your own, Moses. He argues, he argues, he argues. I think he was to the point where if he didn't finally give in, God was probably going to kill him. To be honest with you. Some sick people. I'm telling you. But anyway, he finally gives in. He finally gives in. I was serious about that, by the way. He finally gives in. And he goes back to Egypt and he puts into motion this incredible series of events. But you got to understand, things didn't just fall in you know, the place for Moses, he didn't just strut back into Egypt like, you dude, the man's here, I'm gonna deliver you. It wasn't like that at all. In fact, when he got back to Egypt, started doing his thing, Pharaoh just got ticked off. He didn't go with the flow at all. In fact, it says in verse four, chapter five, the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to work. See, when he came back to work, he wants to get a movement going among the Jewish people, right? He wants to get them on spiritual retreats and to worship conferences. He wants them making sacrifices during the afternoon when they should be working. And it says in verse five, then Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are numerous and you're stopping them from working. Verse six, that same day, Pharaoh gave order to the slave drivers and overseers in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They're lazy. That's why they're crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the people so that they keep working and they pay no attention to the life. So understand, the workload increases, which means basically this. The Hebrews, they didn't care for Moses any more than Pharaoh cared for Moses. They're like, Moses, get your butt back in the desert. You're wearing us out. You're making our lives miserable. But Moses wouldn't leave. He just kept going to the Pharaoh, let him go, no. Next day, let him go, no. The next day, let them go, uh-uh, let them go, no. So they have this standoff, and now you get to chapter 12, and you come to the 10 plagues. And I want you to picture what it must have been like as God brought all these forces against Pharaoh to encourage him, right, to let the people go. The Nile was turned to blood. There were frogs in the land. There was lice everywhere. There were flies. There was a disease that killed the livestock. People had boils all over their body. There was hell, there was locusts, there was darkness that was so intense, light would not penetrate it. And then finally, the big one, number 10, the death angel. And so the early part of chapter 12 informs the Hebrew people how they can miss, how they can avoid the impact of the death angel. By the way, the death angel was to come and to kill all of the firstborn Egyptian males. In other words, every home in Egypt that had a male child was going to be struck by death. So God said to the Hebrew people, let me give you a heads up. Here's the way to avoid that. Here's the way to miss that. Take a spotless lamb and kill it. Take the blood from that lamb. Put some on each of your doorposts. Put some above the door. And when that death angel comes by, he'll see the blood and he'll skip your house. He'll pass over you. And you got to understand that became a memorial for the Jews throughout time. Did you know every Jewish family, every year, they will rid their home of all yeast. Yeast represents sin. They'll take a lamb. They will roast it in a very specific way. They will wear certain kinds of clothing and they will observe the Passover lamb. You know what it is? 
It's another preview of the coming attraction. In Genesis, God had to kill an animal, skin it, so he could cover up Adam and Eve's shame and nakedness. When we get to the book of Exodus, we have a lamb. Again, looking forward to Jesus. Something is going to have to die. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son to die on a cross, to shed his blood. He offers his blood as the detergent that can wash away our sin. And when God sees that we've been washed with the blood of Jesus Christ, he says, you're good, you're good, you're with him. You can come in. So much here. In fact, you know, our communion has its roots in the Hebrew observance of Passover. It all started right here. Well, all of these plagues took a devastating toll on Pharaoh, as you would imagine. And the Hebrew people, they finally hear those long-awaited words, get out, right, get out. So chapter 12, verse 37, the Israelites journeyed from Ramses to Succoth. They were about, here's our figure, 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. By the way, let me just say this. The number one illustration of God's power in the Old Testament is the Exodus. The writers of the Old Testament, they will refer to it over and over again, sort of with the attitude, if God can do that, if he could pull that off, he can do anything. What is it in the New Testament? It's the resurrection. The writers over and over refer back, hey, if God can pull that, if he can raise his son from the dead, he can do anything, see. Well, the people are free. They're finally on their way to the promised land that's been promised all the way back thousands of years, Genesis chapter 15. But I got to tell you what, if Moses thought he had his hands full with those sheep in the desert, he ain't seen nothing yet. I mean, these guys are worse than Baptists. You know, there's an old saying that wherever two or three of Baptists are gathered in God's name, there's at least four opinions. You know what I'm saying? Right. Well, we're talking two and a half million Jews, right? So they're not happy about it. So you get to chapter 13, verse 21. It says, by day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way. And by night, in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left this place in front of the people. I mean, think about it. These are two and a half million people that have been slaves for 430 years. Not a one of them has ever lived free. Not a one of them has ever experienced. They don't even know how to live free. And here they are leaving Egypt, backpacking, going out in the wilderness, just got back, as hot as Hades. Nights are dark, wild animals. So God said, I got you. I'm gonna give you a cloud. It's gonna provide shade during the day. It's never gonna leave you. And at night, there's gonna be a pillar of fire and it's gonna be there with you and it's gonna protect you and it's gonna give you light. God never lifts either one. In fact, the cloud led them right up to the Red Sea. Now picture this. They're at the Red Sea and the Egyptians are behind them. See, they've had a change of mind. They're like, wow, we just let our workforce go. Go get them, all right? So they're in hot pursuit. And now we have the people, they got the, they got the Egyptians behind them the mountains are north of them. The desert is south. The sea is in front of them and there is nowhere to go. And Moses, the great leader says, hey, everybody, I got an idea. Let's just stand still. How's that for leadership, right? I mean, you can hear the hoofbeats of the, ho the horses and the chariots and the dust that's being kicked up. They're coming. And Moses is like, hey, let's take a deep breath. Let's just chill. Let's just relax. Let's just stand still. I mean, how would you like to be one of the two million and your fearless leader says, stand still? But you've seen the movie. You know what happens. God proves himself faithful, opens up the sea. It's really the Reed Sea, not the Red Sea, but hey, it's okay. That's another story for another time. They walk through. 
They get to the other side. They're choking on dust. In other words, it said they walked through on dry ground. The Egyptian army sees the opportunity to continue the pursuit. They charge into the Red Sea, and God's kind of like, mm, okay, now. And the waters come back in, and it wipes out the Egyptian army. And there are people like, that's our God. Our God did that. Our God's incredible. And so in chapter 15, they write a song. They sing a song. They worship. It's basically life is good. Our God is good. Our God can kick your gods. But I mean, it's incredible. You got to read it. Didn't really say that, but maybe in the Hebrew it did. By the time you get to chapter 16, just to chapter 16, verse 2, the next chapter in the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. Oh, those were the good old days. We sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. Oh, it was awesome being a slave. But you brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. And Moses, we hate it. We hate it. So these guys are fresh off of the Red Sea miracle. Fresh off of the Red Sea experience. And they're like, oh, we don't like it here. Can we go back? Can we just go be slaves again? I mean, Moses, we are hungry. And so God sends manna. They had manna for breakfast and they had manna for lunch and they had manna for supper. And I'm sure Mrs. Moses published a cookbook, A Thousand and One Ways to Fix Manna. They ate it raw. They sliced it. They put it on sandwiches. They spread it on their salad. They baked it. They grilled it. They stuffed it. They hated it. They're thirsty. God says, I'll give you water from a rock. I mean, like Arrowhead Springs. They didn't like that either. And about now, Moses is saying, God, can I go back to the sheep? That'll be okay, right? And then you get to chapter 19, verse 1. On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt. So 60 days after they left Egypt. On that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. In other words, they're right back to the place where Moses used to lead those sheep around the desert thinking, wow, how did I end up here? My life will never amount to anything. But now he's back with two and a half million people standing at Sinai. And he's seeing the faithfulness of God. Remember what God told him, chapter 3, verse 12, I'll bring you back to this place and you'll worship me here. So they settled down there, spent a year there. And while they were there, Moses meets with God on Sinai and God writes down his word and he gives it to Moses to give to the people. Now think about this. For the very first time, God writes his revelation for mankind, even though mankind has been on the earth for thousands of years. For the first time, they have it in writing. And so now we have the Ten Commandments. Now we have the law. Now we have God's written word. And I'm just going to be honest with you. If you don't believe this, just read the book of Galatians. Paul does a great job. The law simply told the Hebrew people how holy God was and how sinful they were. And no matter how hard they try. They'll never measure up to God's standards. That's the law. You shall have no other God before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not covet. By the way, when you look at the Ten Commandments, as a side note, the first four have to do with our relationship with God. The second six have to do with our relationship with each other, with our neighbors. 
And now you understand when Jesus came on the scene in the New Testament and the religious leaders cornered him one day, they were always trying to corner him, trying to put him in a situation he couldn't get out of. And they said, hey, Jesus, can you sum up the Old Testament? Can you sum up the law? How would you like that question from one of your coworkers? Hey, Mike, I know you go to church. Could you sum up the Old Testament? Jesus said, yeah, no problem. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. Won't you just work on that, right? So here they have God's written word. But you got to understand, a worshiping people not only need God's written word, they need a place to meet with God. And so the last 16 chapters of the book of Exodus, we learn about the tabernacle. It was, it was a tent. It wasn't a big place. The outer court was 150 feet long, uh, 75 feet wide. The tent of meetings in the middle, 45 feet long, 15 feet wide. There were some articles of furniture. There was a veil there that separated a little section from the rest of the tent. And inside that veil was a small chest, not huge, 45 inches long, 27 inches wide, 27 inches deep. There was a gold slab on top. It was called the mercy seat. On each end, you can see the angels, literally cherubs with their wings outstretched. And we read, now think about this. The glory of God, the presence of God resided right there. This begins the era of what I refer to in the Old Testament as God in the box. And wherever God, the box went, God went. You ought to read First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. There's some great stories about the Ark of the Covenant. I mean, sometimes the bad guys got it, and they sent it back. Because when they got a hold of God in the box, ooh, that wasn't good. Get, just send it back to them, right? All kinds of the interesting story. But God says, my presence is going to dwell right here. And this is what's really interesting. That little veil there, we'll talk more about it next week. Once a year, once a year, once a year. And I'll read you a story. I'll, I'll read you an account of it next week. But once a year, the high priest of Israel we walk behind that veil once a year with a sacrifice, the day of atonement to offer up for the sins of the people. And they held their breath every year. Is God going to accept the offering? It took place right there. And God says, I'll be here. I'll be right here. You can reach me by blood. In other words, if your sins are going to be forgiven, something's got to die. And so we end the book of Exodus with a sinful people standing before a holy God but there's only one way to have access to him and it's through blood. Let me give you a couple of applications as we wrap this up. First of all, real freedom is a direct result of God's intervention in our life. Let me tell you something. Unless God intervenes in our lives, we never know freedom. Unless God intervenes in our lives, we're enslaved to sin. Unless God says, I'm gonna intervene, I'm gonna do something, we forever be in bondage to sin. We would die in bondage to sin. But God so loved the world, right? And so Jesus came, and this is what he said, chapter 8, verse 31. If you hold to my teaching and you really are my disciples, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. What's the truth that will set you free? It's the gospel. The God so loved the world, he gave us his son to die on our behalf, to shed his blood, to pay for our sins, so that we would have a way to get restored and reconciled back into a relationship with God. But he's, he's a, he gave us free will. He gave us free will. So you have a choice. You can accept the gift. You can reject the gift. And let me just say something. Some of you have been tending hope for a long time. You come out of different backgrounds. You love it. You come. You read your Bible. But you've never just got to the moment where you say, God, I accept what Jesus Christ did for me. I no longer trust in what I can do, my behavior, my church attendance, my serving, my giving. 
I trust in what Jesus Christ did for me alone. I'm going to transfer my trust for myself to him. Now, let me just tell you something. I mean this with all the love I can muster. If you never get to that point where you receive the gift of salvation made possible through Jesus, when you die, you will go to hell. It doesn't matter how often you come to church. It doesn't matter how much you give. It doesn't matter if you serve in the nursery. It doesn't matter if you help the homeless. Remember what Jesus said? There'll be a lot of people in that day who'll stand before me and say, didn't I do this? Didn't I do that? Didn't I give out cold water? Didn't I visit people in prison? And Jesus will say, hey, I never knew you. I never had a relationship. You need to think about that. You need to think about that. Have you ever gotten to the point where you think the only way, here's the question you got to answer. If I were to die tonight and I were to stand before God and God said, why should I let you in? What's your answer? And there's only one answer. It's because your son died for my sins. And I accepted that gift. Man, if you've never made that decision, make that decision. That's the game changer, people. That's life now while you're alive. And it's the promise of eternal life after you die. But I'm telling you, real freedom is a direct result of God's intervention in our lives. He loves us and he pursued us. Here's the second thing. When God brings deliverance, he uses choice instruments in the process. We've seen the story of Exodus. He used Moses. He says, Moses, you're the guy. You're going to set a whole nation of people free. But I promise you this. If you're here this weekend and you are a Christian, you have accepted God's free gift. There's been a Moses or two in your life that's helped you get there. It could be a pastor. It could be a Sunday school teacher. It could be a coach. It could be, it could be all kinds of people. It could be a camp you went to, a counselor that shared with you that had an impact on your life. For me, I was five years old. I went to church. I heard an evangelist talk about hell. I was smart enough, even as a five-year-old, to know I didn't want to go there. And I went home and sat on a little twin bed that I had in the same, I shared a bedroom with my parents. Okay, that explains a lot, right? Explains a lot. But I sat on the edge of that little bed and my mom sat down with me and shared with me how Jesus Christ could be my savior and prayed with me there. She was my Moses. See, she was my Moses. That evangelist who shared that message, that was my Moses. So I would just encourage you because sometimes I think we forget how we have been delivered. Go home this week and just make a list of the, the people that God, you look back now, you can say God placed in your life to deliver you out of bondage into a relationship with him. And then maybe you send them a card or an email or text or maybe you call them and say, hey, can we have a cup of coffee? And you just say, Would you, thank you. I wouldn't be who I am now. I wouldn't be where I am in Christ now if God hadn't brought you into my life. Thank you. Thank you for being a part of that deliverance. Thank you for bringing me to Christ. I'm telling you, it'll be a week like you've never had. And then let me just say this in closing. God is using some of you as a Moses and your sphere of influence in the lives of other people, you don't even know it. But I can tell you this, they know something's different about you. And they're watching you. And they're observing you. And one day they're going to come up and say, there's something different. What's going on? And you have that moment, that opportunity to say, let me tell you what Jesus Christ did in my life. This was my life before Christ. This is how he saved me. This has been my life since Christ. Freedom. Everybody wants to be free. Do you know why on July 7th and 8th, we're closed down that weekend after Independence Day. We do this every year. Do you know why? 
It's so you can stay home. How many people say we're not having church just so you can stay home? And this is what we want you to do. Do something with your neighbors. Have a barbecue, have a picnic, have a party, have a pool, get together. I don't go to the lake. We don't care. Get together with your neighbors. You don't have to teach the Bible. You don't have to pray. You don't have to do anything. Just get together with your neighbors and begin to love your neighbor as yourself. And begin to build relationships. Because you know what? Although a lot of us sit here this weekend and we've been freed in Christ, a lot of people in our world are still in bondage. And you may be the Moses that God leads. They may get to that point as you begin to build this relationship where they say, why do you go to church every weekend? So what's this deal with the Bible? I notice that you handle your kids differently and you have that opportunity that God provides to say, let me tell you what God has done in my life. Let me tell you something. We have the only answer to life now. We have the only answer to life after the grave. And we don't share it. There's something wrong with that, people. So I'm going to ask you to be, on the weekend of seven, how many churches just say, stay home and party? Only hope. Only hope. But you know what? We've done this. Laura and I had over 110 people. More came than we expected last week, last year. Over 110 people. And just the other day, I went by somebody's house. And I happened to be talking to a wife. I went by and see her husband. He was out doing something. And she says, God's working on it. This is what she said. I'm so glad God brought you into our lives. I don't know what God's going to do. But see, the soil's been ready. It's been prepared. So God may be using you. You may be the Moses. And you may be saying, oh, I can't. Oh, yes, you can. Oh, yes, you can. God already knows what he wants you to do. He already knows how you're going to do it. He just needs you to be the who. Let's pray. God, you're awesome. This stuff, you can't make this stuff up. We don't like you. We run from you. We curse your name. And you're like, yeah, I love those people. I'm going to give my most cherished possession to die for them. Because I'm so head over heels in love with them. I want to be a relationship with them. Yeah, Father, you're a gentleman. You don't push yourself on us. You gave us the freedom to choose. I pray no one would leave our campuses this week. Well, without making the choice. And, and then maybe they go by next steps and say, I nailed it down this week. I've accepted Jesus Christ as my savior. Maybe they'll allow us to come alongside and encourage them as they begin this journey. But tell someone that they know. Sign up to be baptized. Proclaim it before witnesses that Jesus Christ has saved my life. And it tells us in the Gospel of Luke that every time that happens, the angels in heaven throw a party. And our name gets to be on the banner. So, Father, thank you for loving us that way. And I can't wait to see what you're going to teach us in Leviticus. <laughs> in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us for this week's message. We're so excited to be a small part of all the great things God is doing in and through your life. If you'd like to take the next step in your spiritual journey, download our app to find ways to connect, opportunities to serve, and other resources. And if you'd like to contribute financially to our vision of reaching the triangle and changing the world, visit us at gethope.net slash giving. Thank you for your commitment to resourcing hope as we love people where they are and encourage them to grow in their relationship with Jesus.